Hello, everyone, and welcome to Masters of Digital Transformation, a podcast from AIM10X dedicated to uncovering the best practices and most valuable learnings from the world's leading change agents and community of global innovators. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and as always, we're here to provide you with the actionable insights from today's greatest thought leaders to guide and accelerate your journeys. In today's episode, we'll be joined by the co-author of the book, The Digital Supply Chain Challenge, Breaking Through, Richard Markoff, and the Vice President of Industry Solutions at O9 Solutions, Patrick Lemoyne, to discuss the digital transformation challenges related to SNOP. We're going to start by talking a little bit more about what SNOP looks like post-pandemic and why it still matters to business before defining who's in charge of owning it and how to gain buy-in from those general managers. And then we'll close out the conversation by talking about what is keeping SNOP strategies from meeting the demands of today's supply chain leaders. But before we get to the topic, I did want to make an introduction of today's very special guests. First up, we're joined by Richard Markoff. Richard is a supply chain researcher and lecturer at IMD, EPFL, and ESCP Europe. He holds a PhD and MBA degrees in supply chain management. Richard has worked in supply chain for L'Oreal for 22 years in Canada, the US, and France, spanning the entire value chain from manufacturing to customer collaboration. And he's also the author of the book we'll be talking about today, The Digital Supply Chain Challenge, Breaking Through. And this book was published in 2020. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Caleb. Happy to be here. We also have another exciting guest I'd like to introduce today, and that is Patrick Lemoyne. Patrick is the Vice President of Industry Solutions at O9 Solutions, and Patrick is passionate about technology and how technology can help companies. And this is why, after a few years at McKinsey, he left consulting for the world of enterprise software, and over the past 20 years, he has worked at companies like I2 Technologies, which is now Blue Yonder, E2Open, and even SAP. Patrick, welcome back to the show. Very glad to be here. Hi, everyone. Listeners, now that you know the players, let's go ahead and get to the topic at hand. And the topic really is the question, who is in charge of SNOP? Who owns that? So, Richard, I'm going to start us off here by talking a little bit about where this business challenge lies in the post-pandemic world. So as we think about the last two and a half years in relation to the weaknesses and pain points in the supply chain that were discovered, one area that came to the forefront of many businesses is the SNOP. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about why SNOP proved to be an area of opportunity for businesses. The two and a half years that we've had with the pandemic were were really unprecedented. They were exceptional. This is not a particular insight that I have. But what we did see from a supply chain perspective is for the first time that I can recall, supply chain was in the news, was in the headlines, had broken through the sort of specialized press that perhaps Patrick reads and that I read, and all of a sudden was on the cover of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And we were starting to think about shortages and global supply chains in, in, in the popular imagination in, in a very unusual way. And what we saw during this pandemic was that the companies that had a robust SNOP process, or at least an internal process that reached the same objectives as SNOP, they were the ones that kind of uh, air quote won the pandemic. Right? They were the ones that were able to respond and able to meet the moment in ways that other companies didn't. So I can give you some specific examples of what I would have in mind here. So uh, just by perusing the news, you can see them. This is not a this is a particular information that I have. There were companies like Berea Pasta here in Europe that brought their whole catalog of pasta, over 200 SKUs, the stock keeping units, down to three different products. And they said, we're going to only make these A-plus products because this is what our manufacturing can make. 
This is what we can get the packaging for. This is how we get the most out of our production lines. And that marries with the products that they thought would have the broadest appeal to the consumers who needed food, who needed pasta. Pasta was particularly handy early in the pandemic when it was hard to go to the store. It keeps well. And so Baria, they achieved what we try and get in SNOP all the time. Let's make what we want to sell. Let's sell what we can make in an extreme way, in an extreme situation bringing the catalog to the three SKUs. We saw examples like this also with uh, Unilever and uh, Marmite in the UK. Now, I've never had it. I understand it's, it's not for everybody, but in the UK, they really like it. And Unilever brought down the catalog in the same way. P&G did the same thing with things like diapers and even feminine hygiene products, things we don't always associate with that company. It's the same story. What can we make? What can we make fast? We're having trouble getting labor. We're having trouble getting raw materials. We're having trouble getting packaging. If we can open up our lines, what should we make? How should we fill the shelves? And this is an iterative process. And, and at its heart, this is what we should be doing in SMOP all the time. But in this extreme situation of the pandemic, it really brought, I think, to me, the companies that, that knew how to win and knew what they had to do and, uh, and show the way, honestly, for a lot of other companies. The thing that really stuck out to me, you actually had been talking about SNOP before the pandemic. It seems like it just brought that uh, pain point to, to the top for many companies. And I mean, just looking at the your research that you cite in the in the book, you, you spoke with executives at 27 companies about their SNOP processes. And again, in your book, The Digital Supply Chain Challenge, Breaking Through, uh, you summarize the problem of SNOP ownership as... Uh, there does not appear to be consensus among multinational companies on how to structure the planning process. Uh, the key questions revolve around how to secure the buy-in and engagement of all the actors needed to reach agreement on the different types of plans in a company and how to obtain senior management sponsorship. Obviously, the pandemic seems to bring this to the forefront, but I, I want to go a little deeper here. I mean, after your initial evaluation, what do you see as the key areas that business leaders should be focusing on related to SNOP for the long run? Let's be sure that we're aligned on what we're talking about when we're talking about SMOP here. I don't want to go through any long definitions. That's not going to be very interesting. But I want to be sure that we, we, we all agree that SNOP is not a deliverable. It's not a thing. It's a process. And the objective of the process is to get everybody aligned. Aligned about what we want to sell, aligned about what we're going to make to meet that demand, and to iterate between the two if we need to. Um, so there are a few implications of this that are worth pointing out. The first implication that I would like senior management to keep in mind is that in order to do this, it, it, it quickly becomes clear this is not purely a supply chain activity. If you're going to understand what you're going to sell, then you need sales to give you insight into what the competition is doing, what your customers are up to, what, what are different promotions are happening. Are they going to be expanding the number of doors that they're in? Are they going to be changing their inventory positions? Is there going to be any pricing changes that are going to happen? All of these things are incredibly critical to understanding what your demand is going to be. Uh, if uh, we look to marketing, marketing knows how much they're going to be spending on media uh, and what kind of media. Marketing is kind of going to have insight into the product launches that ideally we've done some market research before we launch, right? These new product introductions. Uh, finance is going to understand, again, ideally, what our financial goals are, how we are ready to meet them, what are we ready to spend in order to meet them. These are not supply chain activities in, in any way, but they are essential to be to have a successful SNOP process in order to define what we're going to want to sell so that we can try and meet that demand. So the first implication here is that SNOP is a multifunctional process. 
It requires different functions to work together and to not be in silos. If that's the case, if that's the first implication, the second implication is that everybody has to work together. Everybody has to coordinate. And if they're going to coordinate and if they're going to work together, then the deliverable is going to be the result of their collaborative work. So the SNOP process, particularly on the demand side, what uh, is called in the literature, the, the, uh, the vertical alignment, the alignment between the different functions within one market, that is a, a broad management activity led by the supply chain, but clearly the owner of the demand plan, as much as supply chain has to be general management because we want their participation and for that participation to lead to the collaboration of everybody else. So we can see now, if that's the case, if these are implications, how the, the dots connect back to what happened during the pandemic, right? that we had management and sales, uh, marketing is kind of maybe perhaps not right front and center during the pandemic. It was really kind of sales, talking to customers, understanding what we could put on the shelves, what the what the customers were ready to do, and even what retailers were able to do to, to for an example of retail, to feed from distribution centers to stores, which at the beginning of the pandemic wasn't even clear, right? How often you could deliver to stores and get room in trucks. So the pandemic showed which companies were able to do this. Now, moving forward with these implications in a post-pandemic world, I think that there are some lessons that we can learn from the examples that I cited about reducing the catalog in order to guarantee sales and to satisfy customers. I think that Patrick would uh, would agree that we've both seen in our career supply chain people, uh, professionals build all manner of spreadsheets and analyses to try and figure out what the incremental cost of a, of a cap product in the catalog is and the, uh, the burden of skew complexity. I'm not entirely sure that this should have ever been a supply chain responsibility, but it certainly has become one over the years. And it's a very difficult, if not impossible, task to answer. Uh, whenever you add a new product to a catalog, you're going to get incremental gross margin. That is measurable. It's You can see it, you can touch it, and it makes general managers look good. And all of the costs associated with that complexity are impossible to measure. There are ghosts in the system, and it's very difficult to win an argument to say, well, you're making this more complex versus you can have more gross margin. Here we are during the pandemic, we got this lesson, we got this opportunity to see that if we simplify, there's really something to be gained. There's a, there are advantages to be, to be reaped. And in supply chains that were not simple, that were complex, uh, you might have heard about some of the, you know, the really uh, prominent ones where, uh, uh, well, toilet paper is a complex supply chain, surprisingly, where you had a, an industrial supply chain and a residential supply chain, you know, the sort of big rolls of toilet paper and the, industrial, and the residential ones. And it turned out that they, these supply chains couldn't cross over. And, you know, I'm not going to be the one who, who's going to turn my back on supply chain optimization and efficiency. There are good reasons why these supply chains were built like this, but there's a cost that came with it and that cost was inflexibility. And, these all these examples, I think, uh, were brought forward by the pandemic. So I think that's an interesting takeaway to have. The the second one that that perhaps can can lead us into other other topics today is around uh, actually how to figure out a demand plan moving forward. Regardless of the techniques or the tools that you're going to use, uh, again, Patrick, I, I hope you would agree that you're going to try and look at history to figure out as a guide to what's going to happen in the future. It is not a perfect guide, but it's kind of where you start. And 
the last two and a half years of history are not very useful to trying to figure out what's going to happen in the next six months or in the next year. We're in this uh, highly unusual, uh, high inflation environment right? for the first time in a long time for almost developed uh, uh, markets, not necessarily emerging markets, but that creates weird uh, patterns of demand. So we're in a moment where history, largely thanks to the pandemic, is not very useful for us for planning moving forward. If there's one thing, one lesson I think we observed in the past two years was around the speed and velocity. So Richard talked about this alignment and making sure that you have a view from the market, you have a view from what is feasible from a procurement point of view for your raw materials and supplies, packaging, a view from factories. I know I was in Italy, you know, in the first uh, six months and quite a few factories got shut down. I guess Barilla probably also had some shutdown, uh, et cetera. Then suddenly you know, production is down to zero at some facilities. So you have to have this end-to-end view of your business. But what is really important is you need to see this rapidly and then evaluate your options rapidly. This is all about velocity and time. And I think the companies, as you said, Richard, that, that did well are not only the ones that were able to put together these SWAT teams and have this end-to-end view of the business, but were able to then do this at speed, you know, always on when there was new information, react to it. And, and I think uh, the same too uh, on, on the demand pattern that you're talking about. I would argue that it actually started way before COVID. I mean, the, the complexity that you're talking about, the, the proliferation of, of products and variants, and it not only in the consumer sector. And it's also in industrial manufacturing, yet yet the number of variants have made, of course, not only, you know, production more costly, but the complexity of forecasting so many different options and variants is, is true. So what you need to do is indeed focus much less on the past because you don't have past data, but use the new modern approaches of really looking at what are the true drivers of demand. And we've seen that companies that use, you know, the more demand-driven forecasting approach, of course, powered by uh, machine learning, do much, much better in forecasting. I have another example. You had your pasta example. I have my ketchup example. The fact that suddenly the demand for the big bottles that were used in restaurants went down and everybody wanted to get the small individual packaging, the stuff that you get in your bag when you take out the food. Sensing that information as quickly as possible is essential to then react and see, okay, I need to change my supplies, you know, away from big bottles to, you know, the small disposable packaging. So this is really where companies' investment in those kinds of approaches and technologies has really paid off for the past few years. I appreciate those examples, and it really raises, I think, a larger question here, Richard. And that's really what you were speaking about in the, the chapter we're discussing today. And the book, you actually asked the question, who's in charge of SNOP? And you had hinted here that supply chain has absorbed the responsibility for this, uh, whether or not that should be the case, that seems to be where we're heading. This is still a question that likely remains top of mind for a number of business leaders. So I'd love to get your perspective here on that question, who's in charge? What were your concluding takeaways related to who should own SNOP governments? To answer that question, I have to uh, be sure that uh, I, uh, I set the stage on a few elements. I went into this research uh, really informed by my own personal experience. I helped uh, design and was one of the architects of the supply chain governance model for L'Oreal when I was there. I found this to be a very uh, a very tricky and complicated process. And when I started collaborating and discussing with other companies, I began to realize that that their governance was not at all the same. And and uh, honestly, I thought sometimes that there was there were some problems. I thought maybe they could do better, maybe, maybe but maybe I was wrong. So so this 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 became a, 
uh, a, a research uh, endeavor, a research enterprise on my part to try and interview as many companies as I could. Uh, so you're quite right. I spoke to over 30 companies. I settled on 27 because I was interested in companies that had manufacturing. And I'm particularly interested in international companies that have their own manufacturing capabilities. And over half of them were Fortune 500 companies. So these are large, serious organizations, leaders in their fields. I spoke to companies not just in consumer goods, where I come from, but also in automotive and in pharma and in industrial systems. So a pretty good cross-section of, of, of what I think are credible organizations. And I wanted to understand what I believe is an underlying tension in SNOP governance. There is a sort of a, a mantra, a cliche as a negative connotation, but really kind of an underlying truth that supply chain managers accept is that for a supply chain to be effective, uh, like, like Patrick mentioned about having quick, rapid visibility, it has to be end to end, right? That you have the visibility from the demand to your manufacturing and back again within your organization and ideally to your customers and to your vendors beyond your, organ your own organization, at least in terms of visibility, but an end-to-end -end governance within. So that's one of the uh, one of the sort of pillars that one would think of that is uh, is part of uh, the SNOP governance. But yet, I just a few minutes ago was talking about how important it was to get the buy-in and the information and the collaboration of marketing, sales, and finance and general management in order to build the demand plan on one end of that. Process. So you have this tension between wanting to align, collaborate in what I call the vertical alignment, so between the different functions in a market, and then this horizontal alignment from end to end, from demand all the way to manufacturing. And supply chain, who's you know, tasked with being the owner of the SNOP process, is so far as I, I, I see it, the only function discipline in a company that is asked operationally to run such a vast scope of the company. There's finance in every organization, but they generally work PL by PL, at least operationally. They'll consolidate and, and collaborate afterward. But you know, you have manufacturing on one end, sales on the other. But generally speaking, the supply chain is the only one that's trying to do all this. If we look at the demand side, there's this compelling case that I hope I laid out about why the general manager sort of has to be the owner of the demand plan, at least in part. But if we're going to be end-to-end, -end, you would want the supply chain to at least have a shared ownership of this between the general manager and supply chain. And the reason for this is because if you just leave a general manager in charge of the demand plan, it will take them about seven seconds for them to realize, well, you know, if I think I need 100 units of this, I'm just going to tell everybody I need 120. That way I never run out and it's going to be great. And uh, I love being in charge of my own demand plan. This is going to be fantastic. And they don't really have to live with the consequences of overtime work to meet that, that, that demand, of the extra inventory, expedited deliveries, all the potential costs that are incurred with this false view of the demand. You sort of inherently do not have alignment when the general manager is manipulating a number. So uh, it's kind of a definitional thing that if the general manager is manipulating the demand plan, I'm sure the SNOP process is not working because I have not achieved alignment. Uh, and I asked these companies a couple of questions that I think are important for us to keep in mind and are pretty revelatory. Out of these 27 companies, I asked them, do you have an end-to-end -end supply chain governance? And I define this as at least a shared responsibility from the demand plan all the way to the production plan. That's kind of how I had to define this so I, could, I wouldn't want to get bogged down. And two-thirds of the companies I spoke to had an end-to-end -end supply chain governance of some sort. 
Now that sounds like a high number, but if I put it the other way and I say one third of these large serious international organizations do not have an end-to-end -end supply chain governance, I find that kind of shocking, right? This is a uh, frankly, a bit disturbing as a number. So something that we take as a pillar, something that we take as a given, I would hope Patrick would agree to me that a good supply chain organization is going to go end-to-end. -end. Even as a technology vendor, if you're if you're looking to sell and to implement an end-to-end -end planning tool, now you're not talking to just one person. So it's really, uh, that's really a problem for me. And then I started asking questions about the actual demand plan. And I asked these companies, do you think that demand plan manipulation, um, so the general manager uh, changing the demand plan after it has been worked on and, and sort of developed ideally by these collaborative teams, ideally by the kinds of tools that Patrick has been talking about, ideally fed by all kinds of information from sales and all that sort of thing. Do you have a problem with manipulation? And 80% of the companies that I spoke to had a problem with manipulation. And so this includes the ones where supply chain is an owner of the demand plan process. This is, I think, a fundamental problem. It does no good to talk about any tools or any techniques when all you're doing is creating a number that is going to get changed on a whim by a manager. That's a, a fundamental ownership process. Absolutely. I think some of the things that you're observing here that you know you, you talked about in your research also have to do with the, I would say, also traditional setup of large global organizations where you had the general manager, the country manager that also owned the manufacturing. But as these companies changed the setup and had the market organization mostly focusing on sales and in a much more centralized view of the business, shared capacities. Yes, the factory might still be you know, in Italy or in Switzerland or, or, or in the US, but it is serving a global market. Then you have to change the governments. You can no longer play the games that you're talking about. The companies that have made this setup are actually probably the ones in your research that have that good governance. This is an excellent point, Patrick. So what you're describing uh, is a term what I call linear supply chains. So you have a very simple supply chain of a market and a factory, and you can have one person in charge of it. And it, you're quite right. It's so simple that, in fact, I excluded it from my research. If a company had a linear supply chain, I knew that this wasn't relevant for what I was trying to understand. I'm trying to understand multinodal, you know, uh, multi-sourcing, multi-market kind of arrangements. And it's, it's come from personal experience, you know, years ago when I, I was in charge of manufacturing supply chain for L'Oreal Canada, uh, for the president, so the, you know, the, the general manager of L'Oreal Canada, his life was very easy. He wanted to know about a new product introduction or a service issue or whatever, he just called me. And I would speak to him and I would be in these monthly meetings for all the different brands and I would speak to what was going on in manufacturing. But as L'Oreal supply chain got more complicated and uh, we would make products for other, other countries in our factory and, and products from other factories would come to Canada. Um, the general manager all of a sudden didn't have a me anymore that he could just call. And he was very frustrated and I couldn't help him. Now, all of a sudden I have 20 clients that I have to manage. So this migration that pretty much every large company did, um, uh, I think was the reason that modern supply chains were created. Right? I think that we created modern supply chains in order to support this strategy of concentrating manufacturing by technologies in larger clustered markets. And we could talk a long time about the different benefits that have been reaped to that, untold billions for large companies of uh, uh, getting more use out of your capital investments, better quality, better uh, OEE, more efficient lines, better relationships with vendors. There's tons of benefits from it, but it needed these supply chains and the complications that come with it. So I think you're absolutely right. There's, 
there's a reason why this end to end is a challenge. And, and we're seeing now a lot of reshoring, onshoring, a nearshoring of manufacturing. I was skeptical 18 months ago, but we're actually starting to see some movement towards this with, uh, with, with government incentives, right? It's not happening in a vacuum. And this perhaps is inching us closer to this world of linear supply chains that you described, which would solve a lot of problems. A thing I'm hearing from you, Patrick and Richard, is alignment is really going to be essential. You, you can't just throw technology at something and expect it to get results. So, Richard, I want to turn it back to you here. I mean, why is it so important for supply chain leaders to ensure this vertical and horizontal alignment that you've already laid out here? has to be established before you begin even investing in these tech or tech conversations? There's really no possibility of having a correct demand plan, if we want to talk about that part first, without having the input of all the actors. Right? We need that information. Right? I've actually seen absurd situations where companies have gone and delivered products to the home shopping network without telling the supply chain, right? made these sorts of commitments. And so there's that kind of lack of alignment. We need sales and marketing and finance and to collaborate with supply chain. This is not a natural thing, right? This For many salespeople, they, the, the demand plan is not what they're worried about. And, and to be honest with you, I think that's okay. I want them selling stuff. That's hard to do. I'd rather they focus on that. But we need information from them. So as I mentioned before, the idea is to get the general manager to feel like he's the owner of the demand plan, that it's not a supply chain's demand plan. It's our demand plan. And that would lead to them driving collaboration from all the different actors. To get there, what some companies have done is to kind of force that alignment and to say, well, let's have a policy of aligning the demand plan and the financial plan. So this is, this is I'm, I'm an advocate for it. I think that it, uh, it works. And in the research that I did, I found out of the 27 companies that I spoke to, only five had a written policy of aligning the demand plan to the financial plan over certain periods of time and within certain tolerances, right? This is not an absolute, but only five companies did. And that's not a lot for something that I think Patrick would say, you know, this kind of this, this thing that you'd expect in the best practice. Five out of 27 is not a lot. However, only one out of those five said they still have a problem with demand plan manipulation. So on the surface, it would appear to work. The, the logic is, is simply that if the general manager is making commitments in his future budgets and his future trends in a large company to a corporate organization, his hands are a bit tied. It will be difficult for him to inflate that number because he'll be inflating the expectations that he is committing to or she is committing to, right? This is something they are very loath to do, right? They would prefer uh, to undersell their financial commitments to, to corporate just as they oversell their stocks. But they know if they undersell their financial commitments, well, they have no expectation of actually having the stock to sell because they have committed to that lower number. So it binds the general manager to a certain logic of, of alignment, which would lead, which will lead to transparency. What I saw in these companies and what I've seen from experience is that in this process, finance is an ally. They want to that they want to work with supply chain for this to happen. It is in their interest. They get a better financial trend. They get a, a better budgeting process, and they will become an advocate for getting sales and marketing to work with the supply chain to get a better demand plan. If we leave the general manager out of the process, that from a management perspective would never work because no general manager could live with their financial commitments to corporate being made by somebody else. 
So the general manager has to be involved also for that reason, in addition to getting this precious market intelligence to supply chain. So it can't only be supply chain, at least it shouldn't only be supply chain if you're going to have this financial alignment. But the general manager who's whose management authority is almost defined by his P&L, really would not want to uh, to cede this authority. So this is where you end up with this with this matrix organization. I, I don't want to neglect the upstream piece, right? So up to manufacturing. What I did see was that it was much more common for companies to have the supply chain responsible for the production planning of the factories, simply because usually the end-to-end -end planning function is not standalone. It reports to a C-level person, and that C-level person is almost always an operations, a COO, a chief supply chain officer kind of figure. So the distance between planning and the economic consequences of the planning decisions that are made are not that are not that distance. There's not that much daylight between them. A factory manager could go to a COO and say, well, my economic performance is poor because the planners oblige me to work overtime or to go onto an inefficient line or to go to a contract manufacturer. Well, that operations person usually has a solid or dotted line over the planning process. So that that uh, that doesn't leave people with a lot of places to hide. So that piece is generally okay. But it also means that I can't make the general manager in charge of the whole process because I wouldn't want the general manager in charge of the operational equipment effectiveness of my factories. So, Patrick, I, I mean, I want to turn it to you here, you know, with your experience working in technology for so long, you know, you really think that technology is going to help us solve some of these challenges, but alignment is going to be essential as uh, we just heard from Richard. Uh, there's a lot of different stakeholders we have to consider. So. Why do you think it's so important for supply chain leaders to ensure this uh, vertical and horizontal alignment has been established before they're investing in the new technology or, or working with vendors like yourself? No, absolutely. And, and I can only agree with, with Richard. Uh, without this alignment, you know, and making sure the incentives are aligned, uh, you know, across these different uh, functions of the organization, it doesn't matter what technology you put in place. Okay. So that is a prerequisite. Um, but I think, as I said, that as you come closer to a model where there is, you, there is this, the reality of the vision of everybody's at the table, you know, from sales to marketing to, you know, procurement, supply chain and, and, and finance, and we're looking at the end-to-end -end supply chain and making these decisions, uh, if you don't have the tools, then the meeting is not very productive. Because it's still mostly opinions. You don't have the facts. You can't evaluate the scenarios. So, no, completely agree with Richard. You need the alignment. You need to align the incentives. You have to see who, who owns the meeting. I think I agree with you. Finance is probably the most neutral. But if I look at, check with your experience, Richard, but most SNOP and IBP meetings, finance is not very much involved. And the way they look at the numbers is very consolidated, very aggregated. And they usually come at the very end. I think what works well, if finance is involved in the meeting, to be able to evaluate that, okay, if we have a shortage of a particular part, and then we have to make decisions on you know, which customers get it, which products get it, uh, high-end, low-end, with different margins, uh, which countries get it, then to have finance look at the implication, what it means from the top line, from the revenue of the company, in terms of margin, uh, especially if you compare the margin expectations, you know, to Wall Street and, and now the, the result, then, you know, then you have a much better alignment and finance can also play a role in, or at least this financial view of, of the plan can help come to the alignment because you have a neutral set of numbers, which is, you know, revenue margin 
I think you have to look at service level also. Am I able to serve my A customers, you know, with a very high service level because that's essential for the future? Uh, you may make your numbers now, but if you hit the service level was your very important customer or very strategic product, then, you know, down the line in, in three months, six months, it's going to have massive implications. You have to look at that also. And if you have the set of numbers, then you can make much better decisions. And I think, again, that brings an alignment based on numbers, based on facts, which tends to neutralize the kind of issues that we had around incentives and, and sandbagging. Well said, Patrick. There's clearly lots of valuable perspective and, and we could spend many more hours talking. But Richard, I want to turn to you here just to give you the final word of how can supply chain leaders or other of our listeners go about taking these findings that you had in your book to their general managers and get that critical buy-in to take the next steps? That's a good question. So for me, there are four key takeaways. Uh, so sort of normative things that need to be in place in order to succeed in SNOP. I would say the first one is set up a governance that is end-to-end. Right? So if you don't have a, an SNOP governance where the supply chain is involved in some way and some kind of matrix organization, from demand planning all the way to production planning, I think you need to do that. Right? You are not going to succeed until you do that. It is impossible to, to have the kinds of reactivities we talked about without that. The second one I would say is to do the demand planning where you collect and act upon market intelligence. Patrick and I have talked about how important it is to have all this information for the customers, all this information about marketing. These things are market intelligence and it's impossible to do a good demand plan without them. And you need the general manager buy into habits. So whatever general manager is doing the one collecting and deciding on it, that's where you do the demand plan. If you try and do it in another location and give them that demand plan, that's not going to work. Right? Especially it would be incompatible with, with a GM owning the, the demand plan. And this, the, the last two, I think, go, go, go right towards what Patrick was saying about uh, scenario planning and trade-offs, and these kinds of live decisions that would make an SNOP integrated business planning meeting really fruitful, enjoyable, impactful, and meaningful. So they would be to have a firm, written, clear policy to align your demand plan and your financial plan. But when you do that, you go to the fourth rule, which is be mindful of financial maturity. If your financial budgeting process, your financial trending process is not very mature, if people don't buy into it, they don't think it's credible, which is the case in a lot of companies, don't align to it. You're going to be aligning to something that's not great. It's going to be garbage. So what you need to do, though, at a minimum, is understand why there's differences, explain those differences, justify those differences, and you might find that you actually bring the financial planning function forward. And you end up in that final maturity level, which, which for me is what Patrick is describing, which is that the financial plan is derived from the SNOP process. And that will happen, like Patrick says, when you can understand the trade-offs, the scenarios, the tools. What does it mean if we move up this launch? What does it mean if we add that, add that uh, customer? What does it mean if this product is going to be out of stock? That's the the richness of, of, of what you can get out of the SNOP process, everyone will appreciate it. I, all, I do agree with Patrick that the, the governance and the process are prerequisites, but to get to that final level of maturity, it's difficult to see success without a tool to help power and enable it. Well said, Richard. Thanks so much for giving us the final word there. Again, this has been such a great conversation. Uh, Richard Markoff, the author of the Digital Supply Chain Challenge, Breaking Through. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Patrick Lemoyne, the VP of Industry Solutions at 09 Solutions, thank you so much for joining us again today. It was a pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into today's episode featuring Richard Markoff and Patrick Lemoyne as we dug into the question, who owns SNOP processes? 
We started by talking a little bit more about what SNOP looks like post-pandemic and why it matters to business before we defined who's in charge of owning it and how to gain buy-in from general managers. We then closed out the conversation by talking about what is keeping SNOP strategies from meeting the demands of today's supply chain leaders. Now, if you enjoyed today's conversation with Richard and Patrick and you'd like to learn more, you can check out the 09 Solutions Sales and Operations Planning landing page that is linked in today's show notes. To keep up with more episodes of Masters of Digital Transformation, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast app. You can also learn more about the activities and learning opportunities available through the AIM10X Innovators Network by following AIM10X on LinkedIn. As we sign off today, listeners, I'd like to echo the words of Seth Godin when he said, There's no shortage of remarkable ideas. What's missing is the will to execute them. We'll be off next week due to the American Thanksgiving holiday, but join us again in two weeks when we sit down with Future Insights Maria Villablanca and 09 Solutions SVP of Global Industry Solutions, Tengi Kali, to talk about the supply chain transformation challenges to watch for in 2023. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll catch you again next time.